Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi, I'm Ben Mankiewicz, host of Turner Classic Movies and also the host of our podcast, The Plot Thickens. We had always planned on doing a live event after we finished our first season. I'm still Peter Bogdanovich. But this being 2020, virtually every event was canceled. So we decided to do our event virtually. Recently, Peter and I got together online with TCM host Alicia Malone to tell some of the stories we didn't get to share this season and to answer some burning questions we got from listeners. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm TCM host Alicia Malone. Welcome to the Turner Classic Movies YouTube channel. We're talking about TCM's new podcast, The Plot Thickens, which recently wrapped up season one called I'm Still Peter Bogdanovich. And we're going to delve into more of Peter's life and career. We're going to talk about the making of the podcast as well as get to as many of your questions as is humanly possible. And so to do that, I'm joined by podcast host Ben Mankiewicz. Hello. Hey, Alicia. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. No problem. And also filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich. Welcome. Hi. This is really intimate, isn't it? I, think I'm in, <laughs> I feel like I'm in New Jersey and you're in Poughkeepsie. So, Alicia, I've talked to Peter a number of times, obviously, before the podcast and since then. And I, I don't think there's anyone more irritated uh, with the pandemic uh, than Peter. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, but you know, as we learned, Peter uh, uh, craves uh, intimacy in every you know definition of that word. The human connection is what uh, is what interests him. It's what excites him. It what, it's what gets him out of bed. And I know. I wish we were all in the same room as each other, but we're going to nice. push on and have a great conversation. So, Ben, I actually want to start with you and something that you mentioned right at the beginning of the podcast in episode one, where you spoke about meeting Peter for the first time and how you were a little bit nervous because of your family's involvement with Citizen Kane and Peter's long friendship with Orson Welles. So I'm curious to know, did you actually talk about Herman Mankiewicz during that first meeting? I don't remember. If we did, it certainly wasn't much. Although, you know, come to think of it, we did. But And I was nervous about that part of the conversation. But really what I was nervous about was meeting Peter because... You know, he's a, a, a walking cinematic, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, encyclopedia. I couldn't remember the word encyclopedia. <laughs> that was great. It was like the I Britannica. They used to sell them. Page, it yeah. had all the information in it. And Peter had a reputation for being really smart. And then I, I presumed that that meant that obviously I would be exposed as a fraud. Um, and that he would see right through me. And as people heard in the, in the first episode of the podcast, I was immediately disarmed uh, by his rather significant cold. Uh, and he was sneezing, and he was drinking tea, and he had a handkerchief. Uh, and so 
I don't know, it just instantly he was humanized and then he was so kind. That's what I love about this podcast is that it humanizes Peter Bogdanovich. It also talks about your relationship, Peter, with all of these Hollywood icons, in particular Orson Welles. I mean, some of my favorite moments in the podcast involve Orson Welles as the house guest, you know, almost burning down your house. And I can also imagine him sneaking through the room in his dressing gown, going off to watch television. But yeah. is it true that he didn't enjoy watching his own movies? Yeah, I hated it. He hated it. I remember one time we were all sitting, I may have told you this story. <clears throat> Stop me if you heard it. Um, we were all sitting in the, at the, the bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel. We were sitting there and he, as usual, Orson was right next to the TV to turn clicking channels, you know. He'd, he, he'd like to watch the commercials sometimes. They're very well directed, he said. <laughs> anyway, he kept changing channels, and suddenly, bang, comes an image of, from the, from the um, magnificent Ambersons. And I said, oh, Orson, it's Ambersons. And Orson quickly switched to turn it to something else. And everybody said, Oya said, oh, Orson, let's see it. And I said, oh, let us see it, little Orson. So he, he, he didn't want to, but he turned it to the channel and walked out of the room. Mm -hmm. So then we, we watched for a little while, but we felt bad that he'd left. So we said, come on back, Orson, come on back. But actually what happened is after about five minutes, he came and stood in the doorway behind us, and kind of leaned against the doorway for a while, and then very quietly went over and sat down next to the TV where he'd been sitting, but it was very, very close for the, for the, for the TV. And I couldn't see his face from where I was sitting. But Oya was sitting over there, and she could see his face. And after about five minutes, she, she made a gesture to me. I caught her eye, and she went, he was crying. Mm. And I said to him the next day, I said, you seemed pretty upset watching that. Is it because of the cutting, how much they recut the picture and all that? And he said, no, 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 it wasn't that at all. It's just, you know, it's, it's the past. It's over. That was cheerful, I thought. <laughs> anyway, that's that. That's that story. He did. He hated to see his own work because he always thought he could do it better. Is what he said. Yeah. And um, yeah. The only picture I remember sitting with, the only picture I saw with him, I of his, was the trial, which they had a screening of it in Paris. He always referred to that as the, that picture you hate, because I I said it was my least favorite of his films, but he called it the, that picture you hate, and. Uh, he said, they're having a screening, we were in Paris, and he says, they're having a screening of the picture you hate on the right bank uh, tonight. Do you want to go? And I said, sure. So we went, and I was sitting next to Orson, and he had told me that one of the things I missed about the picture was I didn't see how funny it was. Well, I didn't think it was funny at all. It was, you know, Kafka through Wells is not really a, 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 a laugh riot. But anyway, um, sitting next to him, he started chuckling. And I could, then I suddenly saw what he saw was funny because he was laughing right next to me. The audience was very stuck up and very Parisian right bank, and they turned around and shh, shh, because we were laughing. <laughs> shh. Anyway, it's funny. The audience telling the director to shut up. Anyway, <laughs> from the, I liked the picture after that. You know, Peter, it, oh, it serves you right. I, I can't, I can't imagine starting a conversation with you and walking up to you and going, "Hey, great! It's uh, good to see you again." You know, the picture of yours that I really didn't like was—it's <laughs> not a, not a great. It's not an ingratiating uh, moment, no. 
it's not an ingratiating moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned oh. Oya Kodak, who was Orson Welles' romantic partner, creative partner, also the star of The Other Side of the Wind. And that was a film that was unfinished when Orson passed away and you helped to complete it. So we have a question from podcast listener Sandra, who wants to know what her response was to the film and did she feel that this version of the film was compatible with Wells's cinematic intent and vision? Yeah, she was quite pleased with it. Uh, strangely enough, I haven't had a really detailed conversation with her about it because I haven't seen her for years. She's living in Croatia, uh, I, I think still. And I spoke to her once in the last few months, in the last year, couple of years. But she, I think she liked it quite a bit. She didn't have any complaints. And Oya certainly would let you know if she didn't like something. So um, she she was very happy that we did it. And uh, it was really a bunch of people that did it. It wasn't me alone at all. Frank Marshall mm -hmm. was very involved, very involved indeed. And um, a couple of very good editors and so on. A lot of people worked on that, finishing it up. And we, we all thought it was, you know, it's Orson Welles. It's, it's, it works. He taught me a lot of things, yeah. uh, sometimes by example, sometimes by telling me. <laughs> Beyond how to tip, he taught me how to tip. <laughs> Start out big and reduce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to see oh, um, The Other Side of the Wind at the Telluride Film Festival, and it was... It was quite emotional even for myself, just being a cinema lover, A, to see uh, the finished film from Orson Welles and B, to see you and Frank Marshall together because you've had such a long creative partnership. We also got to hear Frank Marshall's voice throughout the podcast, as well as, you know, Sybil Shepherd and your daughters. So when you got to listen to the podcast, Peter, did anything surprise you maybe with who we got involved with the podcast? Well, I listened to it, but, you know, it's, it's, it's myself, so I, I don't know what to say about it. it was, I thought it was good. It was very well done. I, I don't mean me. I was, I, was, I was okay, but, I mean, everything just was very well done around me. And, uh, you know, you couldn't fail with that kind of attention and that kind of uh, care. I was very, I was very happy about it. Yeah, well, your story has been told in a few different ways, but never like this before. And so, Ben, we have a question from Ted who wants to know, what was your impetus for doing this podcast? And he said he found it to be a total joy to listen to. And I'd also add to that, you know, why did you feel like the podcast form was the right way to tell the story? Peter had had such uh, success at the film festival. And I'd done a couple of conversations with him and they were, I mean, I'd never experienced audience reaction like those conversations with Peter. So I've been pushing for years with little resistance um, to get Peter uh, more involved uh, at the, uh, with, at the festival and then on the air. And he did all these interviews and, you know, his wonderful book, Who the Devil Made It with all these filmmakers. And, you know, I thought we could do something that worked that right, that we got that on the air on, on TCM. At the same time, I was arguing to do a podcast, but the decision to turn my idea about Peter and to involve Peter more, the, desire, the idea to do it as a podcast, even though I was pushing for a podcast, wasn't that. Uh, so that came from, you know, our head of talent, Susanna Zapata, and, and, and the programming department who thought, 
well, wait a minute, let's, we want to do a podcast, let's do this thing you want to do with Peter. And then Angela Carone, who, who produced the podcast so brilliantly, I mean, when Peter says it's very well done, that's really credit to Angela uh, and, and the writers that, that she had to uh, help her out on the podcast. But the, um, then Angela took this idea that I have of taking these interviews with Peter, it was an idea Peter had too, he wanted to do it, um, with these directors, uh, and she was like, yeah, we've done a lot of research and listen, let's do Peter. He's more interesting. <laughs> we should do Peter. Um, so that's, it was, again, it must've been, you know, eight people coming up with that decision that ended up with us uh, debuting our podcast with, uh, uh, with Peter's story. Something that people may not know about this podcast is though we have these two masculine voices at the center of it, Ben, there are so many women who worked on this podcast. Everybody at TCM in charge is a woman. Um, I mean, I, I want to know, want to know when white men are finally going to get a break at TCM. Okay. <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, I mean, we, uh, um, you know, uh, the woman who runs the network, our uh, general manager, uh, Polish Agnon, and uh, I mentioned our exec, our head of uh, talent, Susanna Zapata, and you know, Angela does the runs the the podcast, and Ann w Wilson runs the uh, studio group, and you know, Paula replaced Jennifer Dorian, who uh, <laughs> who ran it before her, and Genevieve McGillicuddy runs the festival, and uh, and you know, uh, and I w never want to leave. I mean, you know it. Uh, and, and we're less likely to go to war uh, with another network too. So uh, many, one of the many advantages of having women in charge. Well, one film that we didn't get to hear anything about during the 15 hours of your interview was Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women. Of course, with a title like that, it has to be produced by Roger Corman. So Peter, can you tell us what was your involvement with that movie? Very little, but it was <laughs> took longer than Targets, my first picture. But when, offer, when, when Roger offered me a chance to make a picture of my own, which became Boris Karloff's picture called Targets, he also said as a kind of addendum to the, to the offer, uh, he wanted me, wanted me to do some work on a Russian science fiction movie that he'd bought called Storm Clouds of Venus or something like that. And it was about astronauts or whatever they are, they're Russian, it was a Russian picture. Uh, they fly to the Venus, something like that. Well, I see. He said, "I want you to put some women in it because AIP, American International, which all distributed all of Roger's pictures, said they would distribute the picture. Though they wouldn't be crazy about it, but they would distribute the picture if we if he put some women into it. So what he wanted me to do was to put some women into it. And he talked to Mamie Van Doren uh, about it, and she agreed to do it. And so he wanted me. He said, it wouldn't take you more than a few days." Uh, you know, shoot shoot some stuff and put... And by the way, you can shoot down to the Leo Carrillo Beach. It's a good match for the Black Sea. <laughs> Leo Carrillo Beach is a good place. Okay. So I looked at the picture, and it's just goddamn awful. It's just terrible, terrible. You said, Jesus Christ. So, uh, well, he wanted to have women in it, so we figured out a place to put women. And um, there was a kind of a siren's voice, a siren sound that was already in the picture. So we decided, okay, we'll see the, the source of those, that sound. And we had Mamie Van Doren <laughs> and four other blonde girls, because I decided everybody on Venus is blonde. Uh, you know why. I said to Mamie, oh, this is something else I didn't tell you. Roger said, I don't want any dialogue. I don't want any dialogue. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to spend any money on sound. 
So don't have any dialogue. I said, well, what am I going to use? He said, well, we'll just, I don't know, figure it out. <laughs> so we didn't know what to do. So I said, well, I guess we'll have to do it with telepathy. How does that work? Well, you look, she, Mamie, I told her, Mamie, she said, how am I No dialogue, she said. No dialogue. I said, no. A lot of close-ups, though. That shut her up. She said, because actors love close-ups. So um, I said, it'll be a close-up of you, big head of you, and you look, look in the and you say, and you, and you, you do a gesture, or you look at her like this, very intense, and the other person goes, and goes and does it. We showed, we cut it, we shot it, we cut, oh, it was hysterical, the shooting of it. Mamie didn't want to go in the water. She was afraid of sharks. We were on the beach, and there was a lot of these rocks with little puddles in between the rocks. She got into one of the puddles. She wouldn't go into the really in the ocean. And then when, <laughs> at one point, we were supposed to throw a mechanical uh, fish at her, and she was supposed to take a bite of it. And the guy made it, who had made it, put some blood in it and so on, and she, <laughs> she took a bite and went, ah! Almost, we had a hard time getting the cut, the scissors in the cut. It anyway, she hated it. I hated it. The whole thing was horrible. So we showed it to the studio with the telepathy scenes, and they said, "What the fuck is this?" They couldn't understand it at all. So absolutely. So Roger said, "I think we're going to have to put." Um, I said, "Well, I can narrate it," and he said, "Oh, that's a good idea. Narrate it, so, and we can put some thought voices in." So when we cut to the girl, you'll hear her say, get up and get a fish, or something, whatever it is. It, was, it took weeks, and it was just horrible. And they, they included it in my, lit, lit, there was about 10 minutes that I shot, and I did the narration, and that's it. I didn't shoot any of the stuff with the astronauts. Or and the stuff with the women is pretty bad, but it's funny. So we actually, we actually talked about that in the podcast. It's one of the many things that, you know, gets left out because there's so much great information and we end up doing, you know, seven episodes that are, you know, 30, 35 minutes. So a lot of great yeah, stuff was, uh, uh, was left out. But I'm curious, Peter, I want to ask you about this because it reminded me, I just did an intro to La Strada, uh, the Fellini film, earlier today. You know, and Fellini didn't use sound in many of his movies. Most, I don't even know the number, but certainly not in La Strada. There's no sound when he's, uh, when he's directing and he has all the actors speak their language and then they, they just dub in the Italian later. And so what I didn't realize, and I'm curious whether you would have liked this, is that he's talking throughout the takes. So he would say, essentially, he's saying to Anthony Quinn, all right, you're angry, you're angry. Now look at her, now look down, now look up. You're even madder, now you look away, you look back, you know? And uh, I just, uh, and I instantly thought of, you know, you saying to Jeff Bridges, you know, oh, now now you're, you're angry, you're angry. You want to punch Timothy Bottoms, you know? And uh, uh, is that, uh, would that, uh, would that appeal to you, that style, or is that not trusting the, the actors enough? Oh, no, I do that. I've done that a lot. I did it with Clarice Leachman, the whole ending of the last picture show where she, she's looking for a word to say. She's trying to try to find a word, and then she can't think of it. And she, It's a very touching sequence. And it's all, I just talk to her, talking to her all the way through it. It's as old as the picture, picture business because D.W. Griffith was famous for talking his actors through, their, through the moments. There's, a, there's a, an extraordinary close-up in Way Down East where Lillian Gish has a baby in her arms, in her uh, holding her arms, and the baby dies, and she she comes to understand that the child is dead, and the close-up is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, and it's all Griffith talking to her through it. I did that with Cloris. I did it with uh, a couple of actors in that picture. 
I've done it quite often, not that often, but if there's no dialogue and I can talk to them, I did it with Tatum and Paper Moon a couple of times. Sure, there's nothing wrong with it. You talk them right through it, they do it, and it's fine. I, I like that sort of constant yelling at an actor <laughs> to turn their head a certain <laughs> way and not turn back. Well, I don't know if I yelled. Federico <laughs> was a yeller. I don't know. I never met him. Well, Peter, at the beginning of your career, you worked with actors very intimately in the theatre. And then later on, you went on to make an adaptation of a play, Noises Off, which I know, Ben, is one of your favourite films of Peter's work. And we've got a question from Sean, who says that since your earliest directing experience was in theatre, he wondered if you'd ever thought of returning to theatre after becoming a filmmaker and if directing Noises Off maybe filled that need in some way? Well, it certainly brought me back to the theater, which was fun. Uh, I love the play. The play is very funny. I saw it in, in, uh, I saw it in New York, the New York production, which was directed by Michael Blakemore, who directed the London production. And, um, yeah, I loved it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we rehearsed the first act for two weeks and the third act for two weeks, and we were going to we were going to rehearse the, and we rehearsed the second act for two weeks, and then we shot it in six weeks. But uh, when we got to the second act, it was like running into a, I don't know what to say, like running into a mountain, because it was so difficult to do the second act, which is mostly without dialogue. That I said, I got to get somebody who's done this already. Um, I can't I can't do this in two weeks. I can't do it in three weeks. It's it's a lot of work. Second act is tough. So. Everybody was horrified that I said, bring the assistant director who worked in London over. And we did, and she showed us what they did, and we did it. And we changed it a little bit. But I, I couldn't do it any other way, you know. But I figured out where to, how to shoot it. She told us what they did, and I, I figured out how to shoot it. You know, uh, I, uh, it's wonderful when you have a play to, to do as a movie, because the construction, you know, Hitchcock said to me, this is the key... This is the key uh, advice I got that I used on Noises Off and other things too. Hitchcock once said to me, uh, oh, I know, I said to him, um, you, when you made Dial M for Murder, which was a very successful stage play, I said, I noticed you didn't open it up much. You kind of stayed with the play and you stayed inside the rooms and so on. You didn't go outside much. He said, no, no, no. If you do a hit play, just shoot it. Don't try to open it up. Don't try to make it cinematic. Just shoot it. Because if you change the construction, it's the construction that made it a hit. That, that's perfect. But he's tried it, but the construction is what works, what makes it work or not. I remember when we were doing St. Jack in Singapore, and we had a little problem with the story. And um, I remember uh, Howard Sackler, a writer, said there was this, Denham Elliott came to Singapore once in the novel. And he, when a lot of these things happened to him and he died and everything. And uh, Howard said, why don't you have him come three times to Singapore and then split it up that way and you've got, you got a three act play. Brilliant. Noises off, <laughs> Hitch told me what to do basically, just shoot the play. Uh, but shoot it, when he said just shoot the play, shoot it the way he would shoot it, which is pretty brilliant. So I'm not Hitchcock, but I shot it pretty well. I didn't get any more advice from him. No, you yeah, did, and, and the casting. Casting it and shooting it. 
Sorry, what? I was going to say, and the casting that? of that film is perfect as well. It was good. The actors were wonderful. The other thing was we, we did a lot of it in one shot, one take, one, one shot. In other words, we would shoot, shoot, rehearse it and shoot it, and it would be maybe 15 pages. I remember when I saw the movie not that long ago, I said, where the hell did we cut? It just went <laughs> on and on and on. Uh, no cut. And um, sometimes I just couldn't believe it. And the actors had to do that. And was the, the reason that we did it that way was, was not just because I was trying to show off or something. It was because part of the dynamic of that play, as I said, I saw it in New York, uh, was will the actors survive the night? Because they're falling downstairs and falling this, and there's a lot of physical business. And you really wonder, really, one day, I mean, he falls down the stairs, all the way down the stairs, and so on, which John Ritter did brilliantly. But um, so will they survive the night? Well, that goes away the minute you make a movie that you know that they survived the movie because there they are. So, that's the, so I thought if I, if I can get the tension out of the actors by having, making them shoot it 15 pages in one shot, that ought to get some tension going, and that may communicate itself to the audience. So that's what we did. And the actors were wonderful to work with. They, were, they loved it. It wasn't easy, but they loved it. Yeah. It's, a, it's incredible. And, and, you know, speaking of actors, there was one question that we kept getting when we asked for questions for this special event. And uh, the one thing that people seemed to really want to know, Peter, was... If you were to make a film about your life, who would you choose to play you? Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. I don't know. I have no idea. I remember Cary said to me, everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Even I'd like to be Cary Grant. Ben, do you have any idea uh, who you would cast to be a, a young Peter Bogdanovich? Oh, we're talking about a young Peter Bogdanovich. I was thinking, like, who would you know, right? But I guess, right, of course, we we um, the story the movie probably wouldn't be about the making of the podcast, so we'd we'd want to <laughs> we'd want we'd want a young Peter. Yeah, <laughs> it's the story behind well, yeah, the story about, of a podcast about, about 40, the story. I was about forty, Dorothy. Um, you were, uh, you know, you you could have been a, you were an actor, but you could have been, I think, a, a movie star. You're, you're a very handsome man, Peter. Um, so uh, you I know, never thought so. Get... I never thought so. Oh no, you're handsome. I mean, looking at you and Sybil on the on the cover of uh, of, of People magazine. I mean, she, you weren't like you belonged together. You were this this you know this this perfect looking couple. So it would have to be this really you know handsome star in his uh, you know I don't know who. Uh, Who's like, I don't know enough young stars anymore. I just met like two weeks ago, one week ago, I met Brad Pitt. I didn't really meet him. I was in a small group of people and he came into where they were and they'd been talking about Brad, their partner, Brad. I was like, they're acting like, I don't know who Brad is. And then all of a sudden he comes in with his t-shirt on and his hair. And, uh, and, and, you know, he didn't have a mask on. So he like waves. He's super nice. But I, I was struck. I was thought, I was like, you know what? That guy, when he doesn't have his makeup on and he's not uh, fancy and on camera, he's the most handsome person I've ever seen in my entire life. He's a very uh, good looking guy. Yeah, I met him a couple times. He is times. a really good looking dude. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, whoever played Peter, uh, you know, would have to be, uh, would have to be uh, very handsome. Uh, Noah Wiley 
uh, could play could play Peter as an actor. I don't see enough. That I don't I know him. Mm, I can I see that. that and and Ben, if it were the making of the podcast movie, who would you choose for yourself, George Clooney? I'd obviously blame myself. What are you talking about? <laughs> of course, sorry. Alicia, there's an MSNBC uh, uh, anchor slash contributor named Jacob Soboroski, uh, who looks exactly like Jacob Soboroski. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Soboroski. I was just telling a story about Milton Soboroski. Yeah, Jacob Soboroff looks uh, uh, definitely, definitely looks like me. Yeah, hmm. I could see that. You've got the glasses. Well, uh, I'm going to leave it there before you suggest people for me. And I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners for submitting all of these wonderful questions. And I'd also like to thank our TCM podcast team for working so very hard to put together season one of The Plot Thickens. I had zero to do with this. So it's all up to all the wonderful people who you hear at the end of the credits of each of the episodes, and including, of course, Mr. Mr. Ben Mankiewicz, thank you so much for all your hard work and congratulations on season one. Thanks very much. It's Nicole Kidman in Dead Calm. That's, that's we'd have to go back to there and get her. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> and Peter Bogdanovich, thank you so much for, you know, giving us your time, not only today, but also spending many hours locked in a tiny room with Ben Mankiewicz. We appreciate that. <laughs> really, my pleasure, really. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the the job because Ben makes it easy and everybody at TCM is so so welcoming and wonderful people really everybody great group of, group of people and I, I I can't I can't praise them enough. Uh, Peter, thanks for your time today and uh, and during the podcast and uh, you know uh, I can't wait to uh, have a, a long, another long leisurely uh, lunch with you in this. Uh, madness is over or maybe even you know outside safely distance it'd be nice maybe you'll invite me to that one day um thank you all for watching and make sure you stay safe bye bye you're always welcome alicia thanks so much for listening and for all your support for the plot thickens Stay tuned, we're working hard on season two, where we'll bring you another remarkable true story from Hollywood. See you next time.